Under the general notion of democracy, human rights, and terrorism, I have uh, decided on a slightly different, more policy-related presentation to try to make that general topic a little more specific, uh, which you see there. And since I have just come back from a semester in Copenhagen, I feel like I ought to make reference at the start to one of the leading Danish uh, philosophers in history, uh, Kierkegaard, who has this famous line, of course I don't, don't know the rest of his work, but I, you know, I know the popular line that uh, life is lived forwards but understood backwards. We're always getting ourselves into some new situation and then eventually we look back, we look back to history and we try to see if we can learn some lessons of history that would uh, be helpful to us. Now, trying to understand the lessons of history is a very contested and complicated process. I give you a couple of examples where um, policymakers in the U.S. and elsewhere tried to learn the lessons of history and, and it didn't work out so well. Uh, if you go back to the Vietnam War, uh, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations were trying to apply the lessons from Munich, 1938, don't appease aggressors, so you need to stand firm in the, in the small countries and not give them away, and that kind of historical analogy helped propel us into Vietnam so that we didn't make the mistake of giving away Czechoslovakia again, uh, as uh, Chamberlain did in 1938, but it didn't play out quite the same. And then when you get to uh, the Bush administration, meaning the second Bush administration, meaning Bush 43 as opposed to Bush 41, you had another attempt to learn the lessons of history, and, and the lessons that uh, Paul Wolfowitz and some of the others drew about Vietnam was that the problem was the U.S. in Vietnam was worried too much about international uh, opinion, and if you just had had a more unilateral assertion of hard power, we could have won in Vietnam. That helped propel us into Iraq in 2003. Uh, maybe it's easy for the historians to learn the lessons of history, but uh, political scientists and policymakers have, have a lot of problem with this. Uh, so it's no easy task, but what I want to do tonight is to look back to the whole question of what I call U.S. treatment of enemy prisoners since 9-11. I want to focus on that. Um, I'm not going to give a long song and dance about why I use just the general term enemy prisoners because you have all sorts of terms floating around, unlawful combatants, uh, prisoners of war, civilian detainees, people protected by international humanitarian law. I just want to talk about uh, detainees that from Washington's point of view uh, are suspected of being enemies and let it go at that. And eventually if you want, we can get into some of the more legal Tangles. My talk tonight is a kind of policy and politics talk. It's not primarily a legal talk, but if you want to talk about the Geneva Conventions and if you want to talk about the Torture Convention, uh, we can certainly do that in the Q&A, and I will certainly make reference to some of these uh, legal points as we go along. So my basic question is, uh, looking back to the time since 9-11, uh, what are the lessons to be learned how can we protect homeland security or broader notions of national security and at the same time uh, protect human rights? 
this is no easy task. You, you have there in the upper left corner a reminder of what happened on 9-11, and you have in the upper right-hand corner one of the uh, photos out of Guantanamo. So at Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, Bagram Air Force Base, CIA black sites. Uh, how can we do the right thing with regard to in conditions and, and interrogation of uh, enemy prisoners? And yet, uh, keep in mind the very important notions about the type of enemy we face and what they would like to do if they get the chance. The basic policies of the Bush administration are not really in doubt in general terms. Uh, we know now uh, things we didn't know before, and I'm actually a little bit satisfied that it's taking me so long to write my book on the subject, uh, not only because invitations to Copenhagen and things like that come along, but actually with every passing day and week we learn more and more. And we know a lot now. We know that as a matter of policy, uh, the U.S. has engaged in forced disappearances, which is uh, basically state kidnapping, and then uh, keeping the person in secret. This can lead to extraordinary rendition, in which the person is shipped off to Egypt, well known for torture, Syria, likewise, Jordan, not so well known, but um, the Jordanians don't treat their detainees so carefully, Kazakhstan, um, so you have extraordinary rendition, which no doubt you've heard about, uh, CIA secret prisons um, in Europe and elsewhere, allegedly uh, Poland and Romania. They deny it, but the circumstantial evidence points uh, heavily in that direction and other places. Uh, you have at Guantanamo, you have at Bagram, you had in Iraq, the military uh, hiding prisoners from the International Committee of the Red Cross. So even within military facilities, you had secret detention, not just as run by the CIA. And for some reason, I left off one of the main points of controversy uh, linked to forced disappearances is you have a kind of secret prolonged administrative detention without much due process. Uh, and if Guantanamo comes to mind on that score, then you're quite right. And, of course, it's only with great reluctance that the uh, Bush administration released any information at all about the people who were detained there. That's what I mean by prolonged administrative detention in secret without, for a number of years, much evidence of due process. There is no doubt that in all these places of detention you had a certain amount of what I will just call coercive interrogation. And I think there are probably three levels of this or three categories of this. So you have a basic uh, roughing up and slapping around, uh, which occurs uh, almost everywhere in security situations. You have this sort of treatment that rises in legal terms to what is called inhumane, cruel, and degrading treatment. And then, of course, you have torture. This, this Coercive interrogation of various levels and types and intensity uh, was carried out both by the CIA and I think, distressingly enough, by uh, the military as well. Uh, to the point where you had uh, FBI objections and you had the FBI withdrawing from certain situations 
because of what was going on at Guantanamo uh, and other places. I don't really want to focus on legal definitions. I don't want to spend the time talking about legal hair splitting about the difference between torture on the one hand and inhumane and degrading treatment on the other. The fact is that they're both prohibited, uh, particularly by international law. And US law criminalizes torture, but not the other categories. But I really don't, uh, I'll, leave the, um, I'll leave the legal uh, hair splitting to the lawyers. We are talking here about policy. At the time of Abu Ghraib, there was an intention on the part of the Bush administration, there was an effort to convey the impression, well, these are a few bad apples at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, and some of what happened at Abu Ghraib was not authorized, but much of it was. And much of it was the result of imprecise authorization and confusion. But what I'm talking about in general, forced disappearances, extraordinary rendition, running of secret prisons, uh, other forms of secret detention, and coercive interrogation was policy. It was policy. It was decided on at the very highest levels, the highest levels of the Bush administration, which of course makes the whole question of prosecution a very delicate one. The responsibility goes all the way to the top, the very top. I will talk a little bit uh, in a minute how all of this got started and the first thing that one has to do if one is going to implement, implement these policies is tear down the legal framework. You have the UN Convention Against Torture, which the US has ratified. You have the four Geneva Conventions of 1949, which the US has ratified. You have the UN Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which the US has ratified. And in these legal instruments, as well as in US law, you have prohibitions against the policies that were adopted. So the first thing you have to do is tear down the legal framework that exists to give you uh, policy room for maneuver, and uh, in a minute I'll talk about how that happened. Something that uh, has escaped a good deal of attention, but which I brought to the attention of my colleagues uh, in Denmark when I was there last fall, was that these policies were supported by virtually all of our allied security managers. I think one has to keep in mind sort of three distinctions here. You have the people that run the security and intelligence services, whether civilian or military. In Britain, it's uh, MI5 and MI6, and then uh, the military intelligence, et cetera. You have the government uh, and what they knew, and you have public opinion. And there's no doubt that European public opinion in general was very much against these policies. The governments and the security managers were much less so. They were much less critical. And there's been a lot of talk about splits between the United States and Europe, but there really weren't any splits between uh, US security managers and British security managers and Danish security managers. And even when you come to the French and the Germans, who were opposed to the US invasion of Iraq publicly, they were, in fact, cooperating uh, 
with the Bush administration on detention interrogation. Definitely so. Um, and the difference between old Europe and new Europe, <laughs> um, to, to refer to this famous uh, Rumsfeld distinction, um, doesn't really hold up because in general, the European security officials were part and parcel of um, extraordinary rendition, secret prisons, coercive interrogation uh, up and down the line. And uh, governments like the British government and the Danish government were very close uh, to the Bush administration. And as far as I can tell, never raised any serious criticism about what was going on on the question of detainees, although we don't know all the documents and who said what to whom and that sort of thing. They did engage in a little public critique when it became fashionable to do so, but that's another story. And unfortunately, uh, while I certainly am not an apologist for the Bush administration, not in the least, uh, what the Bush administration has done after 9-11 is unfortunately, I think, not that different from the British in Northern Ireland, uh, certainly not from the French in Algeria. In fact, the French in Algeria make the Bush administration look quite moderate and progressive. I'm sort of choking on those words, but I think that's true. Uh, or if you look at uh, is Israeli detention policies over the years toward the Palestinians and, and others on the other side, or if you take a subject that is never covered in this country, Indian interrogation techniques about Islamic insurgents coming out of uh, Kashmir, etc. Well, I think that one is forced to conclude that liberal democracies, even liberal democracies, are not soft in national emergencies, however defined, they do go to the dark side. To borrow a phrase from Dick Cheney, talking about the necessity of going to the dark side. Uh, some nice comparative studies can be done about the British in Northern Ireland, hooding a prisoner, sleep deprivation, prolonged standing. Where, where did the U.S. get the ideas for all of these uh, interrogation techniques? Not only out of our own history in Vietnam and other places with the Phoenix program, etc., but because these democratic security services talk to each other. The Israelis talk to the British, and the British talk to the Americans, and the Americans talk to the Israelis, and these techniques uh, circulate, and they've been in use. And the French went much further in Algeria, uh, which was a, a war of terror on one side, and on the French side it was a war of uh, torture and summary execution. It's not a pretty picture when you look at liberal democracies uh, under stress. Well, if we're going to draw lessons about the Bush administration and policy toward enemy detainees since 9-11, we, we have to know what has gone on. We have to know what has occurred. Uh, it's pretty clear now, and my hat is off to uh, journalists and others who have probed into this and really given us the story that the office of the vice presidency was the uh, driving force in these policies. Uh, Cheney himself early on gave interviews talking about going to the dark side and doing whatever was necessary uh, to protect the security of the homeland. He was quite open in general terms about his position on these questions and he has remained steadfast. He has not changed one bit 
about the necessity of coercive interrogation to protect uh, national security. Cheney's Cheney is David Addington, pictured top left. Uh, he and Scooter Libby were the main agents for implementing Cheney's policy, and particularly on prisoner matters, particularly after Libby uh, got in trouble for some of these policies and was forced out. Uh, Addington was the key man. Addington was the person running the show, and he has not changed either. He is very much like Cheney. He has been with Cheney for decades uh, in the Congress, uh, in the White House, uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, Addington and Cheney have been a team for a long time, and uh, they are the keys to the policy. Of course, uh, ultimately, we have to talk about President Bush. Uh, what you have in the Bush administration, especially in the first Bush administration, is a kind of war council of lawyers. You have a kind of legal war council. Uh, Addington is the point man. John Yoo, pictured top right, uh, was uh, the number two person in something called the Office of Legal Counsel. The Office of Legal Counsel is in the Justice Department. It is a key office now and then because this is the office that pronounces on legal interpretation, which then becomes binding on the executive branch, particularly when the president signs off on it. So what you have in the first Bush administration is John Yoo in the Justice Department uh, writing what are now called torture memos, which are the memos that Addington wanted. You have Gonzalez and Flanagan, two lawyers in the White House, which are the key to the president along with Cheney. And you have William Haynes as the top lawyer in the Pentagon. All of these lawyers are civilian, not military. They are political appointees who serve at the pleasure of the highest levels of the uh, executive branch. And uh, with the exception of you, they are Cheney's people. Uh, you might recall that Cheney, who was in charge of the search for the vice president for George W. Bush, uh, was also in charge of the transition team for George W. Bush, and was in charge of finding personnel to staff the Bush administration. And what Cheney did was put his people in key positions in the White House, in the Justice Department, in the Defense Department, uh, so that on issues of concern to him with these lawyers and others, he could control policy. Um, this initially passed without much public notice, but this is the way it was set up. And so you have a group of uh, politically appointed civilian lawyers with virtually no military background who make the early policy on prisoner matters, detention matters, interrogation matters, uh, and basically they cut out the rest of the Bush administration. And something uh, for historians and journalists and others to figure out is how much President Bush knew about what was going on in his own first administration. I think not very much in the first administration. It will be interesting to see if Bush understood that on uh, questions of Guantanamo and legal status of prisoners there and elsewhere, and the techniques of interrogation that were approved, 
It will be interesting to find out if Bush understood and when maybe he understood that his own Secretary of State and the State Department lawyers had been cut out of the process and didn't know what was going on until it was too late. When did he know that his own national security advisor and close confidant, Condi Rice, was cut out of the process? And most of the lawyers in the National Security Council did not understand what was happening, did not understand that policy was being made uh, about interrogation and uh, confinement, et cetera, until it was too late. Cheney and Addington were able to control the show because, as one analyst noted, the other side didn't show up because they didn't know that the debate about policy was going on. Uh, so Cheney, with his long experience in Washington and Addington, they knew how the executive branch worked, they knew how, how bureaucracies worked, they knew how to control policy. In all of this, the Republican uh, Congress was uh, silent, quiescent. It was uh, Republican-controlled after 9-11. Uh, they elevated uh, patriotism and party loyalty over any kind of uh, supervision or oversight. There's a very nice study by the uh, conservative commentator Norm Ornstein and the less conservative commentator James Mann, and they have studied congressional oversight in the first Bush administration in particular, and it's just not there on foreign policy, security policy, prisoner policy. The Republican-controlled Congress gives the President uh, a free hand, and Congress is very slow to get into the game of uh, helping to make uh, policy on these questions. Uh, courts are slow. Courts are always slow. It takes time for cases to wind their way through the court system with appeals and so forth, and especially if one is waiting for the Supreme Court to pronounce on these things, this is, as usual, a very slow process. One needs to keep in mind that Cheney and Addington were interested not only in security issues, but in their view, restoring the authority and power of the president, which had been damaged and weakened since Watergate, if not before. So part of the Cheney agenda is not only to take a hard line on these uh, prisoner matters, but also part of the Cheney agenda is to keep Congress and the courts at bay and let the president make these decisions by himself. That's part of their agenda and they were very effective uh, at that for a long time. There is international criticism. Uh, I, I could go through the list of uh, UN human rights officials that raise question about all of this, but the point is that in the uh, Bush administration, especially the first Bush administration, uh, they did not like international law. They did not like the UN. Uh, it was very much a unilateralist uh, administration, not only in terms of checks and balances within the United States, but in terms of foreign policy as well. And when there was uh, criticism, especially from UN human rights officials and others, this was dismissed. This was of no importance. It just bounced off the Cheney, Addington, U, Gonzalez, Haynes uh, team. There is, however, uh, increasing evidence that as early as the end of 2002, there was a pushback against the Cheney-Addington policy uh, within the administration, and by 2005, there was a very public pushback uh, by the Congress and 
and uh, these parties inside the Bush administration and outside the Bush administration uh, begin to make effective their unease about the tough policies that were being uh, adopted about interrogation. Uh, probably not many of you have heard of uh, Admiral Mora, M-O-R-A, Admiral Mora, who's pictured there with the American flag behind him. He was retired Navy, uh, the top lawyer for the Navy. Each of the services have their legal establishments, and then you have the lawyers around the Secretary of Defense, William Haynes, whom I've already mentioned. But uh, Alberto Moro was um, a uniformed military, retired in a civilian status, but the top lawyer, the general counsel to the Navy. He basically, when he found out what was going on, uh, went to Haynes, the top lawyer in the Pentagon, and said, I'm going to start submitting signed memos. I'm going to create a paper trail. Enough of this verbal conversation that we've had. I'm going to create a paper trail questioning the legality of the interrogation techniques that are being used at Guantanamo. And you found the next day that Rumsfeld rescinded some of the techniques he had approved at Guantanamo. So uh, the, the Pentagon is full of military lawyers who, when they found out what was going on, were like the State Department lawyers. They were aghast at interpretations of the Geneva Conventions and interpretations of the Torture Convention. And Mora is one of these people who asserted himself at some risk to his own future occupation uh, in Washington uh, because Cheney plays the game very tough. And part of the problem was if you oppose Cheney, you're likely to have your career in trouble. But Mora said, no, we can't, we really can't continue with the status quo. You have to pull back uh, some of those authorizations. And uh, it happened, and it happened virtually overnight. Actually, John McCain is one of the, um, I think, heroes in all of this until he started running for president and shifted his position. Uh, but when he was a senator, uh, John McCain, um, badly tortured in Vietnam, uh, teamed with uh, Senator Warner of Virginia, who used to be Secretary of the Navy under Reagan, and Lindsey Graham, a uh, senator from South Carolina. All of them had a military background. All of them were interested in military honor. All of them were interested in the Geneva Conventions. All of them were concerned about what might happen to US military personnel in the future, given how the Bush administration was playing fast and loose with the uh, Geneva Conventions uh, after 9-11. And these uh, Republican senators gave other senators political cover and from the summer of 2005, there was a very strong pushback in Congress, first of all, focusing on the military and requiring the military to abandon the harsh techniques of interrogation that were then in play. And then uh, having basically succeeded in that through legislation, 
requiring the military to return to the techniques approved in the Army Field Manual, et cetera. Then they moved on to try to bring the CIA under the same guidelines, and it was at that point that President Bush vetoed legislation that would have required the CIA to adhere to the military standards of interrogation. And John McCain was a, a leading figure in all of this, and very principled, and very determined, and stood up to Cheney, which was no easy feat in the uh, first Bush administration. Uh, but the story is a little bit different once he decided to run for president because he uh, shifted his position and accepted the president's position that, okay, it's okay for the military to have humane interrogation procedures, but you need to let the CIA opt out. And so McCain shifted his position uh, to fit with the uh, president. Uh, I think it's only fair to note that particularly what happened in the Congress in 205 and the pushback by Congress in 205 uh, probably would have been different if there had been a second 9-11. If there had been another successful major attack on the homeland killing thousands of American uh, civilians, then I think Unfortunately, the debate and the evolution of things would have been different. But given no second attack, given no discovery of additional sleeper cells, uh, and given the difficulties that the administration ran into in uh, Iraq and other places, then the conditions encouraged a kind of pushback and a more liberal uh, debate about what really was in the American interest and what really was consistent with traditional American values. Well, I've tried to present some of the basics, focusing not really on legal interpretation so much, although I'm, I'm comfortable with getting into that subject, but focusing on politics and policy, because that drives legal interpretation all too often. I, I think we have to admit that insecurity, perceptions of insecurity are, are dangerous for human rights, particularly uh, prisoner rights. I think uh, the feeling of intense insecurity clearly pushes liberal democracies, not just the U.S., but liberal democracies toward the dark side. And certainly I understand that national leaders elected by a particular national polity feel the imperative to defend the nation as top priority and in Cheney's view at all costs. There was nothing else that mattered besides avoiding a second 9-11 uh, for Cheney and Addington in that coalition. Uh, they were terrified by what happened at 9-11. They were fearful of another 9-11 that maybe was combined with not just airplanes but dirty bombs and other weapons of mass destruction. And they were determined at all costs to prevent that. And I think in the abstract there are a number of people who buy into this consequentialist logic as opposed to absolutist logic, consequentialist morality as opposed to absolutist morality, that is not moral not to torture if many innocent citizens, civilians, will die. It's the lesser evil argument. Yes, torture is evil, but it's also evil to have 3,000 people killed in New York and Washington, most of whom are civilians, not combatants at all. After all, at Pearl Harbor, 1941, you had half the number killed, most of whom were military. 
1,500 at Pearl Harbor, most of whom were military, and in New York in particular, you had almost 3,000, virtually all of whom were civilians. That's evil. And so you have the argument about the lesser evil, particularly by national leaders who are elected to protect the Constitution, defend the Constitution, and defend the homeland. It's not an easy question how then you protect human rights in an age of terrorism, uh, particularly uh, with the possibility of weapons of mass destruction. And by the way, there aren't, there aren't any heroes, I think, uh, at high levels in the first Bush administration. And here you have this picture of some of the leading uh, policymakers, including Colin Powell. And Colin Powell has sort of picked up the reputation as one who, um, and it's true, he, he was very much opposed to throwing out the Geneva Conventions. He was, he was also initially opposed to the invasion of Iraq, or at least expressed great, great reservation about it. So for um, a certain part of the American political spectrum, Colin Powell uh, uh, tends to take on the characteristics of, of being a hero in all of this. Colin Powell, along with Condi Rice, along with Ashcroft, along with other high officials, sat around in the White House and discussed who should be waterboarded. And uh, what kinds of other techniques should be applied to prisoner X, Y, and Z. And Colin Powell was part of those discussions, as was Condi Rice. And again, the question of prosecution is a very difficult one because, again, I stress the authorization for all of this and even the implementation of all of this goes to the very highest levels of the U.S. government. And I'm sure as Obama gets into this, he will continue to wonder why he ever wanted that job. Well, what are the lessons? Um, and and uh, again, I, I, I'm not a lawyer and I don't talk as a lawyer here. I'm talking about policy lessons and, and uh, certainly one of the big problems was that in the first administration up to a point, George W. Bush was not much engaged in the specifics and I rather doubt if he knew that Cheney was determining policy without input from his Secretary of State and his National Security Advisor. And I rather doubt if he understood how all of these other relevant parties were being cut out of the process, such as the military lawyers and the State Department lawyers. It's the top leader who sets the stage. It's the top leader who allows a certain interaction to occur. And it's true that the buck stops on the President's desk. And what happened is ultimately the responsibility of President Bush who allowed Cheney to control an aborted policy and an abortive policy process. And I've already indicated how uh, parties in the administration with expertise and who deserved a seat at the table, Secretary of State, National Security Council, uh, uh, military lawyers, State Department lawyers, simply were cut out entirely of the process. I had some brilliant point I wanted to make, but one of the problems in talking from slides and not having a, a prepared written text is these ideas come and go as I, as I, uh, it'll occur to me about five minutes from now and I'll work it back into the talk. Uh, oh yeah, uh, I don't know how many of you understand that uh, Stephen Hadley, who became National Security Advisor uh, after Rice became Secretary of State, when Hadley was basically number two in the National Security Council was a mold for Cheney. Every piece of paper on this subject that came across his desk, he copied it to the Vice President's office. So when there were efforts in the National Security Council and other places to reverse what had been 
done or to oppose what had been done or to constrain what had been done, immediately the vice president's office was informed about all of this, which made it easy for, the, for Cheney and Addington to continue uh, to control policy uh, in this question. I think it's uh, very important in the Obama administration and uh, in other governments in other places to have the policy vetted in the normal process. There is a National Security Council review process. The State Department ha even has an ambassador at large for war crimes who was holding meetings and organizing a kind of review of the proper policy at the very same time that Cheney and Addington were moving ahead and with the help of Gonzalez getting the president to sign off on the policies and the interrogation techniques while the rest of the administration thought they were doing a policy review. They were, but their policy review was entirely irrelevant and it's very important not to have what Cheney used to call himself a kind of oh by the way decision. So on the way out the door, the vice president buttonholes the president and says, oh, by the way, we prepared a paper and you need to sign it about Guantanamo. And that's not the normal review and vetting process. So I think it's important uh, in fashioning these things, all of which have a legal dimension, is to have the normal review process in which the various lawyers and others get a chance to um, participate in the process. And the fact that maybe the president doesn't like this slow, complicated, bureaucratic process, maybe the president is impatient, maybe the president trusts his own kind of gut instincts. He looks at Putin and says, well, you know, I can, I can deal with this former KGB agent. You know, he's, he's a guy you can trust. Maybe that was the uh, policymaking style of the president. But it's dangerous. It's dangerous, and it gets you into great trouble. It's also dangerous for the legislature to abdicate its oversight role in the name of party loyalty or to give a blank check to the executive. One would have thought <laughs> we would have learned that after the Gulf of Tonkin, when Lyndon Johnson lied to everybody about what happened in the Gulf of Tonkin, and the Congress was stampeded into the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which gave Johnson a blank check for the Vietnam War. And after 9-11, Congress, in its infinite wisdom, did exactly the same thing in passing an authorization for the use of force that was preceded by no committee hearings, where the legislative record is very small. And now you have Dashley saying, no, that's not, that's not what the vice president said to me. And the vice president said, yes, it was what I said to him. And you don't have any record. And the Congress was again stampeded into this uh, vague authorization of force resolution, which then allowed Bush and Cheney and others to say, well, that authorized Guantanamo, and that authorized the military commissions. And the Congress said we could take whatever decision we needed in relation to force as stemming from 9-11. And so all of this is related to force stemming from 9-11. And I wonder when the country will learn, I wonder when the Congress will learn not to do this because it's clearly dangerous and can be very counterproductive. Now, uh, involving the courts is very important. And it was very, uh, very dangerous and I think counterproductive for the Bush administration, with Cheney playing a very large role, to think that Guantanamo could be 
illegal black hole, and other places could be a legal black hole. Uh, when the Supreme Court got into the game, it made some very important judgments. The most important was the uh, Hamdan judgment of summer 206, which held that indeed parts of the Gene Geneva Conventions did apply at Guantanamo, and all prisoners at Guantanamo were covered by parts of the Geneva Conventions. I, th I think the court was actually in error in its reasoning, but nevertheless, the conclusion was very important and forced some uh, progressive changes. I don't have time to go into that, but I'll take questions on that. Uh, and top left, you have a picture of the Supreme Court. Top right, you have the picture of the headquarters of the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva, which is the, basically the world's uh, prison inspection agency, if you want to uh, finesse the legal technicalities. Um, and the ICRC was excluded from the black sites. The ICRC was at Guantanamo. It was at Abu Ghraib. It was and is at Bagram. It is at Guantanamo. It's there. Uh, it was fighting the Bush administration behind the scenes. Some of the reports have leaked to the press. Uh, it's uh, not a completely sufficient uh, situation for them to be there to stop all the problems. Uh, but it's a very idea, very bad idea. It's a kind of a yellow flag, if not a red flag, to find out that the ICRC was excluded from the CIA-run <laughs> secret prisons. And that's precisely where uh, we think most of the waterboarding occurred. Uh, um, the, the head of the CIA after Tenet has said that three prisoners were waterboarded and um, presumably that occurred in the black sites where the ICRC was not allowed to visit. One of the big points out of all of this is that for the military, which is a very large bureaucratic organization, if you say the Geneva Conventions don't apply and then there's confusion about what does apply to prisoners and their interrogation, that's when things spin out of control. And that's when soldiers begin watching television and torture shows on television and say, well, we'll try that. We've seen it, Jack Bauer, 24. We've seen it from Iraq. It happened. So we don't know what the rules are, but we see these other techniques. Well, let's try them. Well, I'm out of time. I haven't finished, but I'm out of time. Uh, some things that uh, really can't be legislated. You can't wave a magic wand. You can't wave a legal wand. Uh, when there's a drumbeat of criticism from independent international lawyers saying, this is not right, this is not the right interpretation, uh, one needs to pay attention. And when you have the FBI, when you have parts of military intelligence, when you have various parts of the international community saying, we don't believe in those techniques. We believe you get better information, even if it takes a little longer, through non-abusive interrogation, that point should be entered into the debate. Well, things, are, things have happened since I uh, wrote up my final observations. I'll start with two. The uh, Eric Holder, who is Obama's choice to be attorney general, has said that waterboarding is torture, full stop. He may, he may regret that statement because now that he said it, when and if he becomes attorney general, he'll have to follow up on that. And the CIA has already publicly said that at least three prisoners were waterboarded. So you have Holder's statement. Susan Crawford, 
military legal official at Guantanamo in the past has said at least one prisoner, at least one prisoner, was definitely tortured at Guantanamo. Uh, once these statements are made in public, then it's the obligation of legal authorities to follow up. There is an effort to conduct uh, investigations. Senator Levin, pictured at top right, uh, has been very instrumental at this. I'll not go through what I've written. You can read it there. Top left is uh, Major General Jeffrey Miller, now retired. He was Rumsfeld's choice to go to Guantanamo and make it tough, and basically to use the military police to soften up the prisoners for the military interrogators. He was then sent to Abu Ghraib to do the same thing. When retired, President Bush gave him the Medal of Honor, the highest award for civilians in this country. So you have the view of Jeffrey Miller, you have the view of Senator Levin, and these things are now on the record and other statements are on the record and uh, the Obama administration will have to sort all of this out. Two final points. I'm within five minutes. I'll skip over some of this. Two final points. When you go to the dark side, there are negatives. It's not a one-way street. There are negatives. There is a high probability of unreliable information. Um, there is loss of reputation, soft power. Obama is very conscious of this. There is the problem of reciprocity, particularly in the future. You play fast and loose with the rules now, and what happens when the next John McCain is taken prisoner in the next armed conflict? I don't think these Americans are going to fare too well. And when the Americans start talking about, you know, well, but the Geneva Convention say this and the Torture Convention say that, guess what? They're going to get their own arguments thrown right back at them. So you have the problem of uh, decline of uh, reciprocity in the future. Um, play into the hands of enemies. There are a number of military interrogators who say in Iraq the thing that motivated the insurgents more than anything else was Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. That's on the record for military interrogators. You have what I call in crude terms the disposal problem and uh, maybe you heard that today uh, Obama ordered uh, Guantanamo to be closed and he uh, suspended the military commissions that uh, are in operation there. After you torture the person, what do you do with the person? You can't put him in the federal criminal justice system because the case will be thrown out. After the person has been tortured, you can't even put him in the court-martial system. So what do you do with him? What did the French do with him in Algeria? They killed him. What did we do with them in the Phoenix program in Vietnam? We killed them. What do you do with the hardcore? What do you do with the now 15 people who have been in the uh, CIA black sites, who have been abused, and are now transferred to Guantanamo? What do you do with those people? Uh, you have uh, much injustice done, I won't go over that. I, I think for security managers, for the people who actually run the show, I think this kind of argument about a cost-benefits analysis is important. But then you also have the McCain argument, 
which is an appeal to American values. And, and part of McCain's position is uh, Americans don't do that. That's a, for the political scientists, that's a construct, constructivist argument about identity and that sort of thing. So in addition to the kind of self-interested cost-benefits analysis, you have the kind of cultural um, argument. Well, Americans do that. Professional military don't do that. You appeal to that kind of values argument. Uh, and so you have those two kinds of arguments at play, but Democratic leaders are elected to defend the nation and under attack, whether American or British or Israeli or French or, or uh, Indian in uh, New Delhi, et cetera, they feel a strong imperative to make sure that the attacks stop. Pressures to go to the dark side, and then you have the moral, legal, political arguments on the other side. Thank you for your attention, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, if I knew, I, I suspect uh, I'd be in Washington uh, pretty close to the White House right now. Uh, look, Obama wants to close Guantanamo. He, he recognizes that this has been a, a kind of foreign policy disaster. It's a public relations disaster. Um, there, there are uh, two options. One is to, for some of these prisoners, uh, get them released and get them transferred back to Algeria or Yemen or Saudi Arabia or whatever. That's one option which the administration is working on. It would help if our European friends would agree to take some of these people. So far, Portugal is the only one who has uh, said yes, they will definitely do so. So one is accelerate release, transfer. Another is to uh, transfer some of these prisoners into the federal court system. And after all, the federal courts have handled a number of terrorism trials, and they've done it successfully. And people have been prosecuted and convicted and locked away for terrorism. The first, the first attacks on the World Trade Center in 93, was it? I mean, these people were prosecuted in the regular court system and locked away. So there's the second option. But, but a problem, there's a twofold problem for the group that remains. Uh, maybe there are 250 people left at Guantanamo, 225. You've got a hardcore of maybe 50 or 75 people, um, some of whom have been abused and tortured. I have no idea what you do with these people now at this point. Because with some of them, you're certainly not going to release them back into the arms of al-Qaeda. But you've also got some people that you're pretty sure did dastardly things, but you don't have the evidence that would stand up in federal court, and you might have to divulge a lot of information about your security operations. So what you do with that hardcore? Let's say you can get some further releases. And it was interesting, at the very end of the Bush administration, they accelerated releases. They found some more people that shouldn't be there. So you release some. And some you put in the federal court system, but for the people who have been tortured, I don't know what the answer is as to what you do with them. And, and for the people in the chaos of fighting, you've got American eyewitness accounts that they did X, Y, and Z, but do you have the evidence that would stand up in court? I think 
as best I can tell that the Obama transition team was stumped by this as well. And I don't know what the answer is, but this is one of the negatives when you, you go to the dark side. What, what do you do with these people after you abuse them? I, I, I have no idea what the answer is, and it'll be interesting to see um, what Obama does. It's like, it's like, are you going to try to prosecute some of these people, some of these Americans, uh, who carried out torture, who carried out inhumane and degrading treatment, at least torture, that, that is uh, prohibited by U.S. law, not just by international law. That is a war crime. That is a war crime. If the person falls under the Geneva Conventions and then is tortured, that is a war crime. I suspect on that point, what, I have no idea, you know, Obama doesn't call me and ask for my opinion, but, uh, and he, he shouldn't, he has lots of bright people around him. I think maybe some kind of truth commission, some kind of investigation, uh, and probably no prosecution. This is a big debate, no prosecution. Because after all, for, particularly for the lower people, the CIA agents who actually did the waterboarding, et cetera, they were operating under the memo from the Office Legal Counsel that said, if what you do doesn't resort, uh, result in organ failure, it's not torture. <coughs> Never mind that that's not what the treaty says. Never mind that that's not what the legislative history says. But once the Office of Legal Counsel has issued that judgment, then um, maybe prosecutions are not in order. That leaves open the question of the people who authorized the policy. And what about John Yu? What about the lawyers who wrote the torture memo and signed off on the torture memo? Yu is actually being investigated uh, by the Justice Department for professional misconduct. I'd be surprised, actually, if anything happened to him. He teaches law at Berkeley, um, sort of his successor in that office, uh, who actually withdrew uh, some of his memos, uh, teaches law at Harvard. Um, one wonders what goes into these faculty selections, but maybe I shouldn't get into that subject. People will start questioning faculty selection at UNL, and then we'd, we'd really be in trouble. Uh, Obama has... Uh, as if the economic problems, et cetera, weren't, weren't enough. He has a whole series of real dilemmas in this realm of uh, uh, prisoner policy, torture, um, violation of the law, what to do about it, how to handle it. He's talked about reaching out, reaching out to the other parties, that sort of thing. How can he prosecute? How can he be tough on this? What is the best way to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Uh, in a future administration. Is it prosecution or is it just an airing of the facts? Is it a review of the situation like we've done tonight and people come away and say, yeah, we, we need to do it differently next time. Maybe that's the best that uh, can be hoped for. But on the other hand, I read op-ed pieces that say, well, look, John Yu's going to get away with it. Addington's going to get away with it. Cheney's going to get away with it. Uh, is that right? Is that some of the dilemmas, tough, tough choices. Please go ahead. What's the penalty for the U.S. as a nation um, for breaking the Geneva Conventions and for breaking the uh, Convention on Torture? Uh, you, you have a couple of 
clear built-in sanctions and costs here. One is what happens to U.S. security personnel when captured in the future. That's going to be a cost. That's a sanction. That's a problem. McCain recognized it. Colin Powell recognized it. Lots of military lawyers recognize it. There's a, there's a kind of a built-in sanction there. Your own people are going to be uh, in greater danger uh, in the future. Um, loss of soft power. One of the things that Obama is trying to do is repair the damage to the U.S. reputation, the U.S. reputation for being on the right side of issues. You know, soft power means that you don't have to coerce others to join you. They want to join you. They want to be on you, your side uh, because they want to stand for what you stand for. That's soft power. It's amorphous. It's elusive. But it's there. And the U.S. has lost a tremendous amount of uh, soft power uh, because of these policies. And, and people talk about Guantanamo, but the worst abuse did not occur at Guantanamo. The worst abuse was in the CIA black sites and at Bagram Air Force Base and other bases in Afghanistan where prisoners were beaten to death. And in Iraq. As far as we know, no prisoner was intentionally killed. No, no, per, no prisoner at Guantanamo was killed in the process of interrogation. That is not true at Bagram Air Force Base. That's not true at various places in military and CIA. Uh, places in Iraq. You lose the high moral ground. You lose the reputation. You, you, you lose the ability to attract people to your side voluntarily. How is the U.S. supposed to improve relations with the Arab Islamic world in the light of Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, waterboarding, black sites? Uh, so there are built-in costs. There are built-in sanctions, regardless of formal prosecutions and formal judgments by courts. You have political sanctions as well as judicial sanctions. One last question, and then we can repair to the uh, bookstore basement. Um, when it comes to European uh, anti-terrorism measures, you, you'll hear quite often about um, British intelligence uh, actually kind of busting up terrorist cells and stopping people who are planning terrorist attacks. And, um, it doesn't seem like Europe is uh, too far different. As you said, the security managers at least seem on the same wavelength as American security managers. But also, um, you know, places like in Spain um, have actually had terrorism performed in them. So what is it? Is, is it that they're doing the same thing and they just don't have nosy journalists? Or is it that they're doing <laughs> the right thing? That's no one's I, I think in general the, the contemporary Europeans, by comparison with the Bush administration, realized that the, the way to control terrorism is not so much through blunt military force, but through good intelligence. And uh, even though actually the British learned this in Northern Ireland and they deployed the military and had a very heavy hand and, and things got worse, and w when the British changed their tactics and moved away from blunt military force in Northern Ireland to better intelligence and making some political compromises and bringing the Irish into the negotiations, they, they actually did better in Northern Ireland. And it's good that you bring up Spain because, of course, Spain has been the target of Islamic terrorism. And Spain basically has stayed away as best I can tell, from torture and mistreatment, and again, put a heavy emphasis on better intelligence. And they have rolled up not only some jihadists, but they have lately rolled up some Basque terrorists through 
better intelligence and uh, cooperation with the French. These guys were captured on the French side uh, of the Pyrenees. The, the, and the French Bosque are very different from the Spanish Bosque. And in the Spanish case, they have stayed away from a heavy hand, militarily, abuse, torture, and they put the emphasis on improved intelligence. Germany, too, in general. It's, it's a mixed picture in Germany, but because of the German history, uh, the Germans have been rather careful about torture and mistreatment and abuse. There, there are some cases of it. And, and I would have to say the, the Germans were right in the middle of extraordinary rendition. And a lot of those flights, you know, passed through Germany. Uh, but the Germans and the Spaniards in particular have put a very heavy emphasis on uh, better intelligence rather than kind of brute military force. But we have a very large military. We have a very powerful military. You have a very... You know, the, the old saying that when you have a very big hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And so we have this big military, and we used it in Iraq, and so on and so forth. But I, I, I think it's pretty clear we've had poor intelligence. Look, look at Guantanamo. We found that we kept a number of people at Guantanamo who didn't belong there, and we have released people who have returned to the fight against us. Now, what does that, what does that tell you about how much we know what's going on uh, in our own process at Guantanamo when we detain the wrong people and release the wrong people. So I think the, the, one of the sub-themes in all of this is the need for much better intelligence. We didn't, we didn't have it on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and we, we haven't been very good on other aspects of intelligence. And, and that, rather than relying on brute military force, I think is probably a lesson to be learned from all of us. Thanks again, and please join us downstairs at the